Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 73 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. Today's episode of the podcast, I speak with Tommaso Longquish, who is the clarinetist with the world's most active chamber music performance schedule. He's performed hundreds of concerts on four continents all around the world at venues ranging from Carnegie Hall to local auditoriums in his hometown. We discuss his exciting touring career as a chamber musician, his upcoming international concert tour, advice for traveling clarinetists, and even the importance of taking care of your hearing in everyday situations such as a concert. Before we get started today, I'd like to thank Patreon backers Megan Taylor, Jerry Corton, and Gabriel. For all Patreon backers, I've been sending out some fun Clarinet stickers and a little thank you card, and they also get access to some exclusive bonus content. You can learn more about how to support the podcast at www.clarinet.com support. Last episode, I did mention that you could go to patreon.com support, but uh, honestly, I don't know where that domain goes, so that was, uh, that was a little bit of a mistake there. Sorry about that. The Clarinet Podcast is hosted by Mo Bleichner Music Distribution. You can check out their newest product, the $49 Match Pitch Barrel, at the Clarinet.com online store. Head to Clarinet.com slash store. Of course, today's episode of the podcast is also brought to you by our season sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. And I bring you today's guest after this short message. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit D'Addario.com woodwinds. So I'm here today with Tommaso Longquish. Welcome to the podcast, Tommaso. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're one of the perhaps uh, very few clarinetists in the whole world who makes an active living as a chamber musician. What's that like and what are your current projects? Well, I feel very lucky with that because um, 
Actually, maybe I should tell a little story. I remember uh, when I was a student uh, and I met uh, Eric Oeprich. I, I think maybe you may know of him. Yes. The, uh, the clarinetist who was one of the you know, very first pioneers dealing with period instruments. And I met with him in, in Holland, in the Netherlands, um, just to speak about you know period instruments. I was kind of curious about that. And uh, at that time... I was maybe, uh, yeah, I was 20 or 22. I just had finished my, my bachelor in the United States at University of Maryland. And I was going back to Europe uh, to look for a master's degree. And I was kind of, you know, unsure about what I would do next. And um, I just assumed I would take orchestra auditions. Uh, and then, you know, if I were lucky, I would land a job in an orchestra. Um, but actually, I'd never really asked myself, you know, what do I actually love? Uh, out of the you know rather broad field of music, and I think uh, Eric was great because he um, he actually asked me that question. He he said you know what do you want to do? And I said well I don't know I guess I'll take orchestra auditions. You know that's what one does. Um, and he said no but what do you love? What do you really love? And I uh, I think you know this love for chamber music was clarified in a way by by Eric's question because until that moment I didn't I hadn't really thought about it. I, I had. You know, I liked every part of music. I like, of course, I love orchestral playing as well. Um, but I think that just that question set in motion something uh, for me, which translated very quickly into, uh, yeah, into career choices. And uh, uh, so I guess, you know, the, the, the real turning point was going to uh, to Madrid to, to study at the Escuela Reina Sofia, um, which... Uh, up to this day, but especially in, in those years when I studied there uh, from 2007 to 2010, 2011, um, it had a, just a great chamber music department. Uh, it was, it actually had a kind of, they called it Instituto Internacional de Musica da Camera, International Institute of Chamber Music, with, you know, legendary teachers there. Um, for clarinet, it was uh, um, the late Eddie Brunner. Uh, who, who was a great teacher for me there as well. Um, and, but, you know, every instrument, Radovan Vlatkovic of, on, on horn and uh, um, Tunemann on, on uh, bassoon, Schellenberger on oboe and, and so on and so on, you know, just uh, great teachers coming in uh, every, every week and uh, people that I'd seen on the covers of CDs when I was growing up, uh, just helping me out, helping all of us out, uh, well, about listening to each other and, and uh, making this process of chamber music just inspiring. And uh, um, yeah, that's that's how it started. You know, it started with uh, a question of what I what do I actually love specifically <laughs> in the field of music? And um, and I think that that particular uh, situation uh, then has translated step by step into my current career. So. Well, you raise a very interesting point, and I think it's something that everyone should should really consider. I mean, if you'd asked me 15 years ago what I you know really enjoy doing with the clarinet, I'm not sure that I would have thought of the podcast, for example. But I think yeah. that it's really been a great thing for me, and I've really enjoyed talk, talking with everybody. And I, I I think it's interesting if you open your your mind sort of to other things, except that's right in front of your instead of what's right in front of you, I mean. Um, and the chamber music thing, it's interesting for me because when I was younger, and maybe it's just our culture here in Canada, um, most of the time you start band in about grade seven, so you're about 12 years old, and then mm -hmm. you kind of just continue with that or some sort of orchestra for a long time. You don't really get any chamber music experience. And although I had a little bit, my first real chamber music experience was in university. And I remember not being sure if I would like it or not. And I actually found 
it extremely compelling, and I really enjoyed kind of the soloistic element within an ensemble. What do you love most about it? Well, I should, uh, you know, I should uh, have a disclaimer right away that I grew up in a, in a family of musicians and uh, my father uh, is a concert pianist. Uh, he's living in Italy. And uh, so I grew up listening to a lot of chamber music because um, a lot of his career was, uh, well, it, was, it, it is still split between concertos with orchestra and, and chamber music. And the chamber music part of it, I always loved because I always, you know, when I was uh, visiting him and uh, spending time with him around tours and so on, I would um, just enjoy this very, this the fellowship of chamber music, you know, the fact that uh, unlike an orchestra, which is a, a big organism, it is a complicated organism uh, where individuality is uh, very much stifled or at least uh, uh, let's say it's it's uh, subjugated to a whole number of uh, uh, limitations. Um, in chamber music, uh, you know, you have full responsibility. If it is four of you or five of you or, you know, two people in a sonata with piano, there is equal responsibility and it all, it all lies with you. You know, there is there is no nobody to point the finger at, <laughs> like uh, the conductor <laughs> can be the, 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 the recipient of a lot of finger pointing in the orchestra. Um, as I, uh, I really love that. I, I love about chamber music that, uh, aside from, of course, the, you know, the, the great repertoire, the great breadth of repertoire that clarinet players are lucky to have. Um, but I, I love the, the fact that I'm, I'm never bored. You know, I'm constantly uh, in touch with the, with the musical material, uh, and I can talk about it. I can discuss it with colleagues. I can, I can hear their, their experience with it. I, I get constant feedback. Um, in you know, in the moment that you are rehearsing it, you immediately know what your colleagues are feeling, and uh, because my my musical life is shared among you know more than one group, uh, I I get a broad feeling of uh, uh, both relationships which are uh, continuous and long term uh, with other chamber music partners. Uh, or other situations where I just join in and, and we form a group ad hoc. And uh, uh, that's a different experience uh, altogether. So, uh, um, you know, I, I still play in orchestra uh, occasionally and I, I'm lucky to collaborate with, uh, with a great orchestra in Italy called Orchestra Leonore. And I, I really enjoy it um, immensely. But I must say that that orchestra specifically is also built uh, around a kind of chamber music feel, let's say. We have a conductor. But the conductor is um, very much in, well, in the kind of Abado uh, style where um, he just uh, encourages us to, to listen to, to one another and to make music as if it was just a, a large chamber music uh, experience. So you mentioned some of your, you know, the most compelling composers um, are kind of what inspires you to make this music. Who are the composers that come to mind? I think for uh, for a clarinet player, of course, most of us would answer Mozart and Brahms. That's uh, <laughs> uh, clearly the, the just the, the quality of their work for for clarinet is immense. What about uh, more contemporary, I, like besides the big two? Besides the big two, well, you know, I, I it's I love uh, certain composers which are maybe not so um, so mainstream. Let's say. Uh, Janacek, for instance, you mm. know, he has not written so much chamber music, but I think his concertino is, is a beautiful piece. Um, I actually will perform it in, at the Lincoln Center in, in May of next year. Um, and, uh, you know, for instance, <laughs> you know, this idea of using the E-flat clarinet as he does uh, to mimic an animal uh, in, the, in chamber music, that's quite unheard of, you know. 
Um, that's uh, other composers like Ligeti. I think, for instance, if you speak about Wing Quintet, uh, the the ten pieces of Ligeti, I think, are an absolute masterpiece um, in the in, in his language. Um, there is, uh, uh, I mean, it's very difficult for me to choose. You know, I, I thoroughly enjoy. Um, uh, playing a Poulenc sextet, you know, for me, it's, it's great. <laughs> I just love it. And, uh, and the next moment I, I love to play a, a transcription of the art of fugue for, for a large ensemble. It's, um, and of course, uh, our sonata repertoire, uh, is not as broad as, uh, as a violinist or a cellist maybe, but, uh, it contains some real gems, uh, the Sansan sonata, um, at DBC, I mean, the Rhapsody is just a wonderful miniature. Mm, I must say, it's, it's, uh, if you have played as much chamber music as I have, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, both uh, desirable and forced to, because um, I, I'm participating in both situations where I choose my own programs and situations where the programs are chosen for me. Um, and both have been great experiences. You know, I've learned about a lot of music uh, through researching to make my own programs. Um, and otherwise I've learned of music and learned music that, uh, if it had not been put in front of me, um, for instance, by, by, by the sheer difficulty of it, like the 10 pieces of Ligeti is probably not something I would have, uh, gone to immediately because of the, of, because of the difficulty of the score. Um, but when you work with great colleagues and you all have the same objective of, of creating a great musical experience for one another and for the audience. Um, and then also a piece like the Ligeti 10, 10 pieces, it, it just enters your blood and it's, it stays up there with the masterpieces. What advice do you have for programming concerts? And, and you're doing over 80 this year in countries like Italy, Germany, France, all over the place. That's right. uh, also yeah. coming to Canada, which I'll tr I'd love to make it out to Vancouver. We'll have to see if I can, yeah. I can do that, yeah, but that, that, that's, that's a lot of concerts. I'm very excited about visiting Vancouver and I'll also be in, uh, in London, Ontario and Canada. Um, but, um, well, it very much depends, you know, it, it depends. Uh, I would say that the most important thing is know your venue, uh, know your colleagues and know your audience. Um, there is, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the fourth thing I would say that is just as important is, um, Know yourself. I mean, it's very important that you uh, go on the stage presenting something that you, you truly believe in um, so that uh, there is not too much of a compromise made on uh, on what you believe you are, uh, what you believe are your strengths, for instance, or what you believe are uh, uh, your most uh, intimate connections with a particular piece. Um, to get more into specifics, I would also say that um, you know, I, I'm absolutely fine with a traditional program. Um, let's say, you know, uh, maybe a, a Mendelssohn string quartet in the first half and a Brahms Kleiner quintet in the second half. That's that's great. I mean, it's it's uh, a wonderful experience which the audience will enjoy. Mm, it's possible to make all kinds of connections between pieces and all kinds of um, themes. Um, and I think that's that's a good way to go. Uh, not only because you start to hear pieces from a different perspective when you are you know, tying them together, focusing on, on one aspect, which uh, they have in common. Um, but also because it makes it much easier to, um, involve the audience, um, both at the marketing level, um, which, you know, we have to speak about, we have to speak about how to 
create attraction uh, and create simply the desire for people to come uh, into this uh, sometimes unknown place that is the concert hall. And uh, and secondly, uh, once they're there, it's uh, it's great that that the audience discovers with us why we love that music. You know why uh, why we chose those connections. Um, for instance. You know, I heard your recent uh, podcast uh, with uh, with Charles Snyder, and uh, I just loved hearing uh, how he um, uh, programmed his new series in New York City. Um, it, it, there's a clear personal connection. I'm fascinated by Charlie's uh, time spent in Russia, for instance, or Charlie's connection with Elio Carter. Um, and just as I am, I'm sure many people uh, will want to attend those concerts because uh, you have the chance to, you know, to hear it from the mouth of the horse, let's say. There is a, <laughs> uh, there is a kind of connection, a human connection there. And that's finally, I believe, uh, what, what audiences are looking for. You know, there, um, there is a broad group of people coming into a concert hall or any kind of venue, can be an outdoor venue. What they are coming there is for is to hear music, of course. Uh, but at the deeper level, they want a connection. You know, they'll they just want to to be involved in in what you are uh, in your enthusiasm in your love for what you do. Um, and in you know, it happens to be music in that situation. But I think we can communicate that love um, better uh, when we are really thinking about our programming and and um, you know, it can be also something uh, I have. You know, I have an ensemble here in Denmark where I'm I'm working with uh, mostly, and uh, here we have a chance to do a lot of our own programming. And the places that we are playing in, they are there's a big variety. You know, sometimes we'll be in Carnegie Hall in New York, but sometimes uh, a lot of the time we are here in our Danish venues, uh, and we are a little bit like in the. It's comparable to the Midwest of the United States. It's a it's a quiet area of Denmark uh, with lots of agriculture. And uh, where cultural life for classical music is only a recent endeavor, and we are here to 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 develop that, and to and we are doing that quite successfully, and our audiences are growing and so on. It's a lot of trial and error, you know, figuring out uh, what what people are most interested in, uh, which is quite often not what they are, uh, what you would think that they're interested in, you know. I mean, they may come because you've put uh, a big name on the program, uh, a Beethoven or, or Mozart, but uh, they may figure out that what they enjoy was uh, bird whistle or, or <laughs> you know, Ligeti. Uh, so it depends very much uh, on, your, um, uh, on your setting, I would say. You mentioned the Charles Nydick concert series. Um, you have a couple shows in New York. I don't have his, his schedule in front of me, but do any of those overlap? Are you going to be able to see one of his concerts or...? I, I promised myself to check that when I heard your the, your podcast with him because I, I want to compare calendars and and see if I and normally when I'm in New York City um, I I do see uh, Charlie because um, uh, well we've uh, we've invited him uh, also a couple of times here in uh, in Denmark as a guest artist and uh, I I also play a little bit of pure clarinet and I've. Uh, had a couple of lessons with him there at Juilliard uh, in the last couple of years. So 
it's uh, I, I do, and I, I, I mean, I, I just like him, and I, uh, I like Ayako. I like uh, the wonderful sushi. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, I always uh, propose myself if uh, he and I have a common time to to see one another when I'm in New York. Wonderful. I hope you get a chance to go. That would be great. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something, and I, I can't remember who sent this in, but a while ago. A listener sent in a question, um, really, I guess it was a podcast episode idea, and I wasn't sure quite who to talk to about it, but maybe I'll run it by you real quick, just the, sort of the, the thought of it. Um, and that is, they were asking about how to kind of develop music or how to go about a music career in a place that's sort of a smaller city. Now, you mentioned you're kind of in an area that sort of like the Midwest of Denmark, I think is how you just quoted it. <laughs> yes, yes, that's and, it. Our ensemble is actually named <laughs> Ensemble Midwest, because that yeah. is actually... Uh, the part of the country and it i mean it's a coincidence that it's in the midwest of the of the country of denmark but uh, it has it shares some characteristics with the with the midwest of the united states but what advice do you have for sort of trying to grow a cultural scene i mean I, i'm in much the same boat here in calgary it's 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 a city of over a million people now but it's by no means a cultural artistic mecca uh it's it's a long topic of course and uh but well, I, I can try to shed light on just uh, some. Um, yeah, just for a moment. We don't need to focus ideas, on it. We yeah. don't need to focus on it. Uh, for instance, one uh, one thing I would I would immediately try to do is to um, to find like-minded people in the city or in the area, um, artists, venues, uh, enthusiasts, uh, broadcasters. You know, just get in touch with people that uh, you think might be interested in, in, in what you're doing and create synergies. Uh, that's, uh, that seems to be a, a recurring topic, uh, today also in large cities, you know, um, the traditional institutions, the, 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 you know, long, um, honored, uh, classical music venue. Uh, that's, that's not maybe in such great health today. Um, it, it uh, it really develops by connections with other things. Um, so if you can create a, a cultural network, I think that's a much better approach than to uh, try to create something alone. Um, connect with others, um, get access both to, to their talents, to their audiences. Um, and even, you know, if you really want to get specific, uh, there are questions of marketing, which are important just to, to, uh, to get the name of your venue or the name of your group uh, or your own name out there. Um, that means, for instance, getting access to, to people's, uh, to, to other organizations, mailing lists, um, uh, all kinds of things that are allowing you to, to reach the people that, uh, actually are, are, have always wished <laughs> for what you are uh, offering them and just have not had a chance to access it. Uh, that's one thing. And the other thing is, um, speak to people. I mean, speak to your audiences, speak to the, the people that come to your concerts, uh, the people you teach, figure out from them, what is it that they're missing, uh, in the city? What is it that, uh, mm, you know, get constant feedback, uh, all the time. That's something that, uh, we are doing more and more recently in Denmark, uh, because of the nature of our job, we are always trying to assess. Uh, why is an event successful and another one not as much, for instance? Uh, it can be something silly, you know, something like a matter of scheduling. It can be that um, you just double book, uh, you know, a concert on one evening when um, another event, you know, seemingly unrelated, like a, a book reading by a prominent author is going on in the main library. 
uh, it's two things you didn't think maybe would coincide uh, in terms of audience, but maybe in a small city they do. Um, I mean, it's it's a, it's a huge and broad uh, field, but I uh, I would say the most important thing, as I mentioned, is uh, uh, is people. Always people uh, make connections, uh, forge networks, and uh, and uh, make teamwork happen. I find too you you can't take the. Uh the low, sometimes the low turnouts or something personally. I mean, I remember a time here when we planned an event and there was a big snowstorm and of course barely anybody came and, I, you know, I felt pretty down about it, but it, there's nothing I could do, you know? So you got to right. just sort of learn from that and move forward and, and uh, go with Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, I've, I've played concerts uh, for, you know, 1,500 people. I've played concerts for 10 people. And uh, sometimes the best concerts are for the 10 people. <laughs> it's uh, there is no no way to know um, what, what atmosphere will be created, and uh, uh, you know the, the people that came, uh, those 10 people that came to hear you, they, they came to hear you. They 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 braved the you know the thunderstorm or uh, whatever other uh, difficulties there may have been on the way to come and hear you. So I always want to give uh, the very best experience uh, to people who are coming to. Uh, to listen to me. And that may be that they come on the stage, you know, for instance, that if there is a small audience, you know, come on the stage with us, sit, sit with us. Let's make it really uh, a kind of house concert where you can get an experience which you never would have otherwise in a concert hall. So I would say uh, in all of this, in the topics of programming, of uh, audience outreach, um, of development, uh, of cultural development, always uh, have in mind that the the possibilities offered uh, by what we do are are much bigger than what normally we encounter. Uh, I hate to say think out of the box, but but it's really true. We have a box. It's a functional box. It's the uh, uh, you know what we've been doing for for a hundred years more or less in terms of uh, concert presenting. Um, it's a good box. I grew up with that, but but there is a lot that we can offer. Uh, and most importantly, without compromising on quality, I mean, uh, actually given a, giving even a better experience um, than, um, um, than the traditional concert. You know, you mentioned the marketing element of all this a little bit. And I, I think that, you know, locally you must be dealing with a lot of in-person conversations with, and you know, putting up posters in the classic route. But um, what do you make of the whole social media as far as advertising for concerts? And what importance does uh, that and a good website have in today's modern performance economy? Uh, good question. It's um, the social media is very important on one hand. Uh, on the other hand, um, it's also crowded. It's very crowded. It's, uh, uh you know, everybody's investing uh, money in social media in terms of uh, sponsored advertising and so on. And, uh, everyone is doing it. It's not, um, uh, only related to this very small field of, uh, of classical music or the, uh, or the field of entertainment even, uh, you know, you're competing for space, um, you know, which is advertising both by technology firms or by uh, clothing firms, by all kinds of um, endeavors. So uh, if you will advertise uh, on Facebook and uh, Instagram, Twitter, whatnot, it has to be done well. Uh, there, there has to be some work behind it or um, it's just a waste of money, um, which you might want to use elsewhere. Um, so my experience uh, has been that you have to target your audience really well. Um, you have to, to know how, uh, targeting works on social media. And, uh, 
you know, it's a terribly boring topic for a musician because that's that's not you know why I got into music. It, it was not uh, in order to have seats in the concert hall. Um, and luckily, I don't have to do that full time. I'm, you know, most of the organizations I work for, we have a marketing department. Uh, we have one here at Ensemble Midwest. We have one in in Italy with uh, Orchestra Leonore. And of course, you know, the Chamber Music of Lincoln Center, where I where I work as well, they have uh, a terrific marketing department and a terrific budget for that as well, uh, which they need in order to compete in New York City. Mm, so. In, in in Florence, where I have uh, my own value, uh, my own venue, where I um, organize concerts along with my father and my family, uh, there we organize a few events every year, uh, and that's where I had the, the hands-on, uh, you know, approach where I have to deal. Uh, I cannot delegate there; I have to do it myself. Um, again, I think uh, networks work really well. You know. Uh, uh, I don't know, find associations, for instance, like um, a Rotary meeting or Alliance meeting, whatever uh, associations there are around you and uh, and go to them one week before the concert, go to their regular meeting, uh, invite them over to your concert, give them a special prize uh, if they are part of, of an organization. Um, if you are a member of a church or if you feel comfortable with attending a church service and playing something for them, you know, uh, just offer them music and, and uh, ask the, the pastor or the priest uh, to, to let them know about an event in, in their neighborhood that you are organizing. Uh, I, I still trust uh, personal contact with people. Um, and I, I trust uh, friendships, you know, when, when, um, when you can get somebody to come uh, to your concert, you know, next time tell them, bring your friends, you know, we're going to give you a discount. You know, if, uh, if you, if you bring a friend, he's going to come in for free next time. Um, depending on how your budget is made up, uh, the bigger part of your, um, uh, income doesn't come from ticket sales. That's at least the case for the organizations I work for. Um, and the, and the organization I, ma I manage in Florence, um, that's not the place where things come in. You know, you have to look for um, government funding, sponsorships, foundations, uh, uh, other things. So I think with tickets, uh, at least in my experience, it's, it's good to use, um, uh, offers which are making it easy and desirable and, um, not terribly expensive for people to attend. Well, it's funny you mentioned how this sort of whole topic of marketing and, and this element of it is is rather boring to a musician. And I, and I would agree, but it's almost become a necessary part of doing what we do. Um, do you consider yourself like a small business owner or is that somehow not, you know, some people consider that offensive yeah. also. So I don't want to. <laughs> no, 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 I don't. I don't find it offensive. Uh, I, I'm myself trying to change my own mindset uh, when it comes to that, because I. Um, again, you know, I go back to my personal history. I, I grew up, uh, in a family of musicians where, um, with a very traditional successful career, you know, my father, for instance, was, uh, you know, when he, when he was uh, 16, he won a competition, an important competition. And that started his career. He was on, on all the televisions. Uh, he was, um, uh, you know, he was taken in by a, an important agency. Um, and all of a sudden he had concerts everywhere and, uh, well deserved of course, but it, it was built up from an existing, uh, industry, um, including, you know, recording contests with, ma with major labels and so on, which nowadays are simply not there anymore. Uh, they're not there even for people like him any longer and definitely not for people, um, that are starting out in his situation, for instance. So I do find that 
you know, I, I've had to change my own mindset because uh, what I've experienced um, as normal growing up, um, that's not anymore uh, the, the, the norm in, in classical music. Um, so I, I think we have to we have to look into that. Uh, I, I, I'm lucky enough that I wouldn't have to, you know, if I have to be, <laughs> uh, if I would want to be totally outside of the, of the business part of it, I could be. Um, uh, again, I'm, you know, I'm lucky enough to have uh, enough concerts without having to organize anything myself. Um, but, um, but still, I, I think it's important to be on the inside of it. I'm, uh, when I, when I work at the Lincoln center, I'm fascinated by how they, uh, they deal with their marketing, for instance. Um, and, uh, when I, I'm, I'm here at Ensemble Midwest in our, you know, with a much, uh, smaller budget and, and smaller, um, yeah, also a smaller amount of competition than the cultural competition than the Lincoln Center faces. Uh, I, I'm interested in seeing, you know, what can we do? Let's experiment. You know, we have total freedom here. We are, we are in great part, uh, state funded and funded by local governments. And we have only one aim that is to, to develop an audience, to develop a, a, a an appreciation for classical music, to make sure that people are, uh, coming out of the concert hall or, you know, when they're done listening to our CD, that they are happier than they were before, that they have discovered something uh, special inside of them uh, or something special about sound that they didn't know about before. And, you know, that very noble <laughs> aim requires um, that uh, somebody <laughs> along some step of the line has some understanding uh, of uh, of how to be, um, of how, simply of how to reach the people that, uh, that know that want to, to hear you, uh, and even the people that don't know yet that they want to hear you. Well, you raised another very interesting point though, in, in all this. And, you know, for someone like yourself, uh, you, you obviously are dealing with agencies and marketing groups and things like that. But in order to get, uh, to that level, ironically, you need to have a lot of these skills yourself <laughs> in the first place, yes. you know, <laughs> even if you no longer utilizes them as much as you maybe did. So it's just, it's interesting how as musicians, we sort of need this up until the moment that we don't, but we better make sure it's a good set of skills. That's right. Yeah. And I should stress that, uh, uh, you know, the most important thing by far all along this is your love for the music and, and how, how good you are simply, you know, how, how charismatic you are on the stage and, and how, uh, wonderful you've delved into all the intricacies and all the, the meaning of the music and how can you relay that to an audience in a way that it just raises the, 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 the hair on their uh, skin, if you say that in English, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I, that's why I, I wouldn't want to put the, the, the cart before the horse here. The, the important thing is what we do is what we offer. That is the, the, I mean, to call it in a very vulgar way, the, the product of what we do. Um, and, and that has to be top, you know, it has to be, it just has to be the best, uh, from a marketing perspective as well. You know, you want to be able to be proud of what you do to an extent that you really can go out there, uh, and tell a presenter, uh, you're going to want to hear this, you know, and for a person like me, for instance, who, uh, you know, I, I need to be sure of what I do. You know, I, I don't want to, I don't have this, uh, this space of somebody who will go up to a presenter and, and sell something I'm not sure of, uh, like a partnership I'm not sure of, or I want to be totally sure, you know, I, um, so I want to have experience, for instance, on the stage, 
uh, a particular piece with a particular group, for instance, and then I, I'll feel great about repeating that experience, about going to, uh, to, a, to writing to a festival uh, director or uh, a concert season um, artistic director and, and tell them, you know, you're going to want to listen to this. I, I've had this experience, you know, I don't, I don't often come to you offering things, but this you're going to want to hear. Um, uh, that's important. And that comes from, from trusting your own quality and, and knowing that you have something to say, um, which is not only of, uh, uh, which is not only meaningful, but it is, it is you, it is only you in that moment that, that can offer that. I think students too, I mean, there's this, there's this sort of trend right now and in a way I would agree, but people kind of are talking a lot about how careers aren't made in the practice room because you do have to get out there and network and meet people. But at the same time, careers aren't made at the local print store making business cards either. Like you've, you've got to put in the practice and, and be a competent player before anyone really will take note anyways. So um, it's, it's a hard balance and it's something we're dealing with more and more going forward as, as things change. Sure, it's a, it's a, it's multitasking, you know. I, and it's a, it's a risk to go in um, one direction or the other. I would say, um, if I would go into one direction only, I would, uh, I would go for the, just to, to make sure that when I go on the stage, uh, I'm giving the best music that I can give, you know, that, uh, um, that I'm giving an experience to people that uh, is new for them, that is uh, something. Uh, they didn't even know that they desired to hear before. So that's, that's where I would go if I had to choose. Um, in reality, of course, I try to, to multitask and to, to balance things out, um, both on a personal level and for, for the groups that I work for, for the institutions that I work for. So this season you're traveling to numerous countries and you're performing over 80 concerts. What's that like sort of mentally and how do you stay sharp on the road? Um, a lot of it has to do with, uh, with repertoire for me, you know, I just, uh, dive into whichever program, uh, is coming up uh, and that keeps me very focused. Um, I've now, I've actually had, you know, these 80 plus concerts per year now for the last five or six years. So I'm, I'm relatively used to, to the rhythm, although sometimes it can be very tiring. Um, but it's also a different situation now than five years ago, uh, because even though I, I studied a lot of chamber music um, during my uh, my you know years studying, I actually you know there are still many many things that uh, I had not played simply. Uh, so the the repertoire for clarinet is in a way very blessed because uh, we can kind of get to the end of it, at least of the of the major part of it. Um, so for me now, it is more about exploring the, um, the unknown gems or some contemporary pieces which were just written uh, or going back and, and finding some pieces which are rarely played, like uh, like the Reicha Quintet, for instance, is you know rarely played for clarinet and strings. And uh, I played at Lincoln Center and I will play it again there in, yeah, I think in the season after next. So it's... Um, a lot, a lot of it for me has to do with the material, the music that I play, and this has become easier with time because I simply know more of it, and it takes uh, much less time for me to pick up, uh, you know, a Bartok contrasts or a Messian quartet when I've done it many times before. Uh, that lightens the load on the whole season when those, you know, masterpieces you have them under your belt. Um, so that's that's a part of it. I find that. For me, what is tiring is um, 
is a trouble. You know, it's. Uh, I think there was a famous uh, quote of uh, I forget if it was um, Rubinstein or one of the uh, pianists from from that time. They they said, you know, they don't pay me for playing. You know, they pay me for traveling. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I, I I do feel that sometimes. Um, I travel a lot also for personal reasons uh, and um, the, the, the final result is that um, I have to get the energy from my playing because the, the, tiring, the, the, driving will, uh, the driving and the flying will get it out of me. <laughs> so I need to um, be constantly uh, inspired by the music I'm playing. Uh, sometimes there are some tough periods, just the way dates work. Um, for instance, last year I had to... Uh, give an American premiere of uh, one uh, piece by French composer uh, Jean-Frédéric Nouberger. And this was at, uh, this was also at the Lincoln Center. And, uh, and it was uh, a piece for the same uh, instrumentation as the Messiaen, so piano to your plus clarinet. And uh, it was really a, a very difficult piece. And uh, I was playing with, with uh, the composer. Jean-Fred was uh, playing the piano. He's a wonderful pianist. Uh, but it also meant that there was a lot of hard work going into that piece, you know, knowing that I would play it with the composer, um, who is, by the way, <laughs> Jean-Fred is a total genius. You know, he can hear every note, even in the most complex of, of his own writing. Um, so, it, you know, when I was preparing for that piece, which was so extreme, um, it, it was full of, uh, it had a very complicated cadenza with um, very fast staccato high notes and big jumps all the time. And, you know, one dynamic mark for every single note. Um, so working that piece, for instance, took me weeks and it made it so that, you know, that particular part of the year was, was stressful and tough. Uh, so again, uh, how I stayed focused and just by, uh, desiring to, to give the very best, uh, that, uh, when I, when I get to the, to the concert and I'm, I'm on the stage, uh, I, I'm, I'm just simply proud to present that piece that I believe in it and, and that, uh, um, I'm hopefully as much at one with my instrument as I can be. I always like to ask people like, like you who have so much traveling experience, two questions um, on the podcast here. One of them is, do you have any general travel advice? And the other one is what advice specifically for, for the clarinet with traveling? I mean, it's a wooden instrument. We have reeds. Uh, you're dealing with a lot of different climates. So, so what, what would you say to sure. both, both those things? Um, well, I'll take first the clarinet advice. Uh, the, Yes, I deal with very different climates. Um, when I'm in New York in the winter, for instance, the the the, the air systems uh, at the Lincoln Center are making the, the air very dry, even though uh, at the Chamber Music Society we have an enormous numbers of uh, humidifiers. Um, it's very difficult to keep, to keep the um, air humidity there at the proper level. Um, that means uh, I have to think about physiology as well. You know, I, I have to keep hydrated myself. Uh, or my mouth will get dry, especially in a concert when there's a, a little more uh, excitement. Uh, I have to, um, I have a, one of these uh, reed cases, which I think is made by a German maker, which has a hygrometer and a little sponge, you know, and I try to keep the reeds. Um, is that Lomax? Or no, sorry, the reed case. No, so. it's not Lomax. I, you know, I, I can tell you because I have it here. One sec, um, but you know that reed allows uh, that reed case allows me to um, 
to try to keep the temperature, the, the, the humidity more constant. And I, I think that's a good thing. You know, for instance, in um, in Denmark, I hardly ever uh, have to put water in the sponge hmm. uh, because uh, the climate here is generally quite humid. So um, it's called uh, Reeds and Stuff. It's the company Reeds and Stuff uh, by Udo Heng. So it's a... Um, German company working out of uh, yeah out of Germany and, and making I think a lot of double reed products but they are making this single uh, this is a single reed case which carries 12 reeds at a time and has an agrometer and it's it's very sturdy uh, you cannot put it in your uh, <laughs> jacket uh, pocket because it's, uh, it's quite big but um, I, I I do find that this is helpful in the extreme temperatures. Uh, and and humidities at the clarinet level. Um, of course, I try to keep the instrument um, pretty well oiled, especially now as I have <laughs> brand new instruments. I'm. And so, do you mean do you mean key oil or bore oil or both? Um, well, well, both. Um, I'm more worried about the the bore oil because you know the key oil that I it can always you can always put it later. <laughs> there will there will be no major mm. damage hopefully coming, but um, but the bore can get very dried out if you're in a dry climate. Uh, it's all about. Sorry, before we go on, which bore oil do you recommend? Because I, I, there's a big debate between like synthetics and some people use almond oil, but my thought with that is that it would go rancid, wouldn't it? So, which right. do you use and why? Well, on this, I've been following totally the advice of, of my clarinet maker um, because he's uh, he's using linseed oil, and you know that's that's just what he uh, has advised, and I'm hmm. I'm going for that. I've used uh, almond oil in the past. Uh, you're right; it kind of. It gets a bit rancid and it, it gets, um, yeah, it, it, the texture is not so so great either. Um, there are, somehow I'm, I'm turned off by synthetic oils, mineral oils, but I'm sure they're fine, you know. I, I just, uh, I like the idea that wood gets a, a, a kind of natural oil in it. Um, and, you know, I don't want to enter too much into, into that debate because it's rather a matter of faith. <laughs> yeah. Rather, than uh, than science, at least for me, I haven't worked that out, that one out. What I can say, and I think that's that's um, out of experience, uh, the truth uh, with regards to temperature changes and so on. Um, I always feel that the instrument is in the greatest danger uh, when conditions change. Of course, uh, I, I think you know an instrument will keep uh, in good shape when it's in a rather stable environment. Uh, I do feel that uh, in, you know if I'm just coming in. Uh, in the house, for instance, in here in Denmark, you know, where outside it may be very cold during the winter, um, and I'm just coming in into my uh, heated uh, living room, uh, I'm not gonna wanna play the instrument immediately. I'm gonna let it sit for a while, and and then I'm gonna, you know, hold it in my hands for a little while, um, so that um, there is not this uh, trauma, uh, because it is a trauma to 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 have this hot air or warm air going through it when moments ago it was in, you know, minus 10, minus 15 degrees Celsius in the car. So, um, yes, well, I you hear that's taken to an extreme. I mean, I often have to head out in minus 40, um, yes, and then into a, <laughs> into a concert hall or something. And then that's a 60 degree difference. Right. That's, that's really crazy. I mean, I, uh, again, the advice I can give is just to to be you know know your know your material, know the instruments. Um, I've I've experienced uh, years ago uh, one instrument cracking uh, because of this sudden change. Uh, I, I heard it and I felt it, and uh, and it's not a nice feeling. Of course, you know the instruments will work fine after a crack. It's no no problem. There are even if we want to speak about faith, there are even some theories that uh, um, instruments are performing better. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, it releases some, the tension or something like right. that in the wood. I have I have no idea, but I don't want my instruments to crack. You know, they look beautiful, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and of course there is a whole number of problems with maintenance when you do have a crack. So I'd rather not go. You know, not uh, risk that. Um, that's um, and as far as traveling, uh, I would say uh, for me it's very important to to get good sleep where I can get it. Uh, to, um, um, you know, invest in my travel. Uh, I, I don't fly a business class. Uh, I, I don't invest that much in it unless the, the, the promoters are willing to offer that. Um, but otherwise I try to just keep hydrated, uh, eat healthy food, uh, at least around the travel time. Uh, and of course, adjusting to the, to the time zone difference, that's sometimes a problem. Um, not so much on these long tours, like, um, like I would have in the spring in, in the States, that's a three week tour. And I mean, we're touching every part of the country, but it's, uh, there, the problem is just getting exhausted because you're traveling every day. Um, the big problem are, is, is when I travel, for instance, just for one week to, to, to Asia or to, to, to the States or to South America, then you have, you know, one week in which you're just about getting used to the time difference and then you've got to head back, you know? <laughs> so, uh, those are the, the tricky moments for me. Yeah, that's, a, it's very interesting. And, and thanks for indulging me in that. Cause I also find myself, uh, well, I find myself learning so much from the podcast guests and, uh, there's been a few travel tips on here that I've learned that I've, I've definitely applied them every time I've traveled and it's made a huge difference. So you can learn a lot from people who travel as much as you do. <laughs> I'll give, I'll give one last advice because it's a, it's a recent uh, discovery for me and I can totally recommend it. Uh, although I suppose that a lot of, um, uh, you know, travelers, uh, will, will already know about it, but um, buy a good pair of uh, noise cancelling headphones. Uh, it, ah. it makes all the difference for me. Um, not just uh, to listen to music, which is of course a whole other experience when you can actually cancel out the, the plane, uh, the airplane noise, uh, or the, or the, tra- even the train noise. Um, but, um, I, I just wear them all the time now when I'm on a plane or I'm on a train, um, you know, for pleasure or for work. Uh, I just uh, wear them on and have the noise cancelling uh, function on, even without music. Uh, I found that I'm I'm just so much more rested when I get to my destination. Um, we don't notice it, of course, because uh, you know we just get to our destination normally very tired and confused. Um, but since I've started to use the headphones, I do realize that um, simply that there is a stress that uh, your body takes uh, when there is this constant noise. And it's kind of scary when I have the headphones on. Um, I have, for instance, a pair of Bose, which I think uh, the Bose company is quite advanced with these noise cancelling techniques. And uh, it really cancels it like almost completely. It's, it's a bit freaky, actually. It feels like you are in a void all of a sudden. <laughs> um, and uh, what is really scary is when you, when you turn the function off uh, after you know, an hour that you've been in silence because you realize how loud that noise is. Um, and we normally just you know, we're so used to it. We don't, we don't notice that it is loud. We just notice it's a, it's there and it's constant on a plane. Um, but the, the air and the engine noise is, uh, is dramatic. So when you can get rid of that, uh, at least for me, it really helps to get to my destination a little bit more fresh than I would otherwise. It's so interesting you, you mentioned this, and I was about to ask which brand uh, of headphones you use and, and whether it was active or passive noise cancellation. I, I find for me, and, and this is just for me, I mean, many people have great success with those Bose ones, but the active noise cancellation makes me a bit dizzy. Do you ever find that? Um, well, 
I do feel a bit strange at the beginning uh, with them, especially the the over ear, you know, the big uh, Bose uh, headphones because it's quite extreme the noise cancelling amount. Uh, so as I said, it feels like you're in, in space, in a vacuum. And, and at first it's a weird feeling for me. Um, I, I don't feel uh, dizzy, um, but I, I, I agree that it's an unusual sensation. Um, if I wear the in-ear Bose headphones that I have, um, which are just easy to carry, so I, I tend to have them more with me, um, they're a little less extreme in the noise cance- cancellation. And uh, I find that, you know, I get less of that sense. So I... Uh, but I definitely would say to people shopping for these, you know, go to a store and, and, and have a listen, um, figure out, uh, you know, if they're comfortable also, uh, if they, if they fit your, uh, your head types, your ears and so on. Um, because, uh, you've got to be comfortable if you're going to wear those for an eight hour flight. Well, I guess I should quickly explain what I'm talking about as far as active and passive. So active uses batteries and sort of microphones to counter the sounds that it hears. Um, whereas passive is almost like a, an earphone built into an earplug. Um, and those are the ones that I tend to use and they do give good isolation. And I guess another benefit is they don't use batteries, but it's, it's depending on what you like and what you want. I totally agree. You got to try them out. Yeah. Test them. And and there are, you know, lots of reviews uh, of all these brands on, on Amazon, for instance, you can read many reviews. Um, but it's, uh, whether passive or active, uh, I think it's, uh, it's a good thing to have when you travel a lot. Not to mention from a hearing protection standpoint, too, and, and even ear fatigue. I mean, as someone who relies on their hearing for a living, I mean, it's important that when you do use it for your art, that it's the best it can be. And you're kind of really ready to hear with fresh ears, literally, you know. That's true. I, you know, I, as I said, I perform mostly chamber music where uh, uh, we don't have such a big problem with noise levels, even though <laughs> the groups I play and have uh, can have a lot of power. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm never in pain from this. Uh, of course, when I play uh, in orchestra, uh, because of the position where the clarinets sit in the orchestra, it can be quite painful if you're playing a Bruckner symphony and you have, you know, the trumpets behind your, or the full section of horns. So um, I, I do try to take care of my hearing that way uh, by wearing a good pair of, uh, of uh, uh, earplugs. But uh, I would advise everyone to do that. Uh, also when you're young, I mean, already when you are, uh, I do get the urge sometimes to take them off, you know, like, uh, some, there are some moments in, um, I remember years ago playing one Bruckner seven in, in Japan, uh, and it was just a great orchestra. And, uh, in the biggest moment, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Bruckner seventh, but there is in the Adagio, the slow movement, um, there is a famous place where, the symbol um, and um, yeah, this, there's a big symbol crash and this symbol player has been there the whole time waiting for that moment and that will be it. You know, that, that was it. That was <laughs> the, the I, I believe he, there are like two symbol crashes within 10 bars and you know, it's a full orchestra at uh, four Fs and the poor liner players are normally sitting in front of, you know, one of the brass sections with the timpani right behind them. And, uh, and the symbol player who has just waited for this moment. <laughs> and, um, and I remember, wearing earplugs in the rehearsals. Um, and on the concert, I, I just wanted to experience that. I, I, I really just wanted to hear it. I wanted to, to feel it was painful. You know, I mean, I, I had tears coming out of my eyes because, uh, it is a lot of sound, uh, when you're in the wrong place at that time. But, um, but somehow sometimes I also feel lucky when I'm inside of, uh, of an orchestra that you really get this, uh, uh, this amazing experience to be enveloped by, by, you know, bathing in sound. 
Absolutely. And and for those interested in hearing protection, you might want to check out, I think it was episode 14. I actually had an audiologist from Edemotic Research on to talk about this, and it was really... Oh, great. Really, really com- uh, yeah, I will yeah. listen to that. I'm very much looking forward. It is so important. I, I cannot stress this enough that, that we take care of our hearing. I, you know, I just last week I was at, uh, at the Rolling Stones concert. They're having a, a, a small uh, tour and um, they were in Copenhagen. So I, I got tickets months ago because I never heard them in concert. And I was uh, very curious to... Uh, you know, to watch the old grandfathers there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was a great show. You know, I, I mean, they really know what they're doing. They have great charisma and they're still in shape musically. It, it was thoroughly enjoyable. Um, but I, I really have no idea how those 40,000 people I was surrounded by could listen to it mostly without headphones because uh, um, it is an extreme noise level. Um, and I, I totally get the the power of it, and I, I I also enjoy it, you know. And I again I listen to to a couple of my favorite songs by them um, uh, without earplugs. But I had my earplugs in, and, and I, I really enjoyed the concert. I, it was still loud enough for me, and I could hear every note. Um, so I I think in general, you know, outside of the musicians' world, um, people are used to very high noise levels when they are in, in clubs and discos and. Um, and it's, uh, of course, as musicians, we are facing, uh, I'm facing sound <laughs> every day for hours. So it's not just the, no- the decibel levels, but the, the fact of being constantly stimulated, um, with sound. Um, so, yeah, and especially when, when we're playing ourselves, clarinet players, you know, we have a lot of, uh, sound, you know, vibrating in our own skull, just in our own bodies. Um, so we just have to take care of it. So. Well, I find your conversation or your thoughts there about the Rolling Stones thing so interesting. And it's something I've thought before. I don't understand how so many people can just stand there and, and put up with it. Um, like, why don't they just turn it down? It's clearly too loud, yeah. you know? There is there is for sure, a, you know, a push to, towards louder and louder dynamics. And uh, and I totally get it. You know, it is, it is powerful. That's fine. But uh, um, I think it was just today I read an article, uh, an, an opinion article um, by somebody um, discussing this, uh, in classical music, you know, how this is actually, um, in, in the, in the writer's opinion, this is a problem with classical music that we're not amplified, um, because the rest of the world is coming up in, um, in, in volume levels and people that come to classical concerts are underwhelmed. Um, you know, as, as a, as a chamber musician, I, I find that, uh, our argument, uh, even with my <laughs> desire to market music and so on, uh, uh, I find that misses the point uh, because for chamber music, for instance, uh, the of course there are moments when you want to, um, you know, just to, to to crush your audience with sound. Of course there there are those moments, but it's always functional to the to the discourse of the music to what you're trying to say. Um, and uh, overall, you're trying to tell a story or to to paint a picture of some sort, uh, and that uh, story is not is not being yelled, you know, it's being told with all mm-hmm. kinds of shades uh, and colors of voicing, of pronunciation, of, uh, um, evocativeness. So it's, uh, you know, I, I would not want to see that in classical music. Volume is important. And, you know, I, I also, as a clarinet player, I, I also try to be able to give a large volume, especially when I have to play in very large halls. Uh, I still try to go for at least the, the imagination of, of just, you know, flooding the hole with sound. Um, I want that as well, but, but the meaning of the music is not there. It's somewhere else. So, um, 
I, I'm actually quite proud that, you know, even though maybe chamber music is even a small field within classical music, uh, I'm very proud of the, of the intimacy that it, al- that it allows li- the listener, um, that it's not about volume, like, uh, or about a loud bass or so many of the other characteristics that, uh, um, people are searching for in music, uh, or let's say that, uh, the music industry is evolving with. Uh, we are offering a totally different uh, experience, uh, which is uh, uh, which is based on the meaning of sound and the beauty of sound. Well, you know, and in a way, I can agree that people are, especially audiences not familiar with classical music, they are probably underwhelmed when they come to an orchestra because they're used to being able to, you know, well, they're used to having to wear earplugs almost and go deaf by the end of the night. Um, but in the case of classical music, like we experience such a huge dynamic contrast, especially if it's done well. But that's part of the what it is, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I've experienced uh, myself playing. Um, I, I have a console to play uh, amplified clarinet, and and you know I have a, I have pedals to put the electric effects on it, and it's uh, it's very empowering. You know, I, I sometimes I enjoy using that, especially in improvisation and so on. Um, it is a different sound, and it allows you many possibilities. So I'm I'm not against the use of. Uh, of um, amplified or electric sound. Um, however, I do feel when I'm playing clarinet with this setup uh, that if somebody were to pull the plug, I would look pathetic, you know? <laughs> and uh, it's, often, it's often my thought, you know, at these big rock concerts where, don't get me wrong, I totally love the music, you know, I, I can, you know, really enjoy a rock concert. But uh, I just sometimes imagine, you know, if somebody in the back pulls the plug, <laughs> how these guys jumping around like crazy on the stage and sweating so much, uh, would look because, um, I can tell you from, uh, maybe you've had the same experience uh, playing an amplified or an electric clarinet. Uh, you are doing so little work. I mean, you hardly have to put air through the instrument because the, the, the pickup microphones are so sensitive. So, uh, you, you know, you have to give so much less than you would um, in a real concert, uh, on an acoustic instrument. Um, so when you realize that I immediately realized, okay, so actually, you know, everything that's going on, uh, on the stage of a rock concert is 80% is show and it's a great show and, you know, we want to enjoy it. And I, I don't, even for myself, I don't want to ruin, uh, this, um, appearance that those guys are, you know, really crazy and jumping around and having a great time. Um, but when you connect it to the amount of effort they're making in order to play their instruments, with the exception of the drummer, maybe, um, you know, there is a disconnect there between the amount of energy they're putting in, uh, in the music and what appears to be coming out, both in terms of sound and in terms of their choreographies and looks. Um, and I think it's wonderful in, in classical music and acoustic music in general that, you know, what you put in is what you get, you know, what your body is uh, the thermometer of, of the in- intensity of the music. It's so funny. You bring to mind a bunch of things and a couple questions actually now. Um, thanks for going on this tangent with me. It's been very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I, I watched a video and if I can find it, I'll link to it in the show notes for this episode, but it's, it was exactly what you talked about. It was some guy who basically reverse engineered all of the U2, uh, guitar, um, riffs or hooks or whatever you want to call them. And he basically just showed their extreme simplicity and, but not in a negative way. He, he was sort of trying to get at the artistry of using the pedals as a new sort of, 
um, you know, artistic influence on the sound and, and really kind of though, you're right. If someone were to pull the plug, you'd hear a pretty sad, um, (laughs) simple, (laughs) simple guitar thing going on, but, uh, that's just kind of what it is. Um, and then I actually saw this happen. I wasn't at the concert, but, uh, they were broadcasting a Radiohead concert this year and, and at Coachella and the sound cut off and it went from sort of a really involved, surreal, uh, song filling an entire stadium or whatever it was. And all of a sudden it was just a couple guys on stage with a tambourine and <laughs> you couldn't even yeah. hear anything anymore. It was like, sounded pretty pathetic. So, well, you know, we, uh, we, we face uh, this problem in classical music. I think, um, there are some venues where I agree the, 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 the size, the sheer size of the venue is, um, it's just too big, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I even have that feeling about well-known venues like the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. Um, again, you know, especially with opera, I do want to be enveloped by sound. I want to have the feeling that I'm just part of the drama and 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 that there is a cinematic quality to to it. Um, and a whole as big as uh, as the Met, even though you know, of course, they've it's not a bad acoustic, let's say, but it's. Uh, and it's not the Royal Albert Hall in London, which is even larger and even more complicated of an acoustic. Uh, but still, what is the limit, you know, at which we can actually uh, give people um, the the best feeling with sound? Because, you know, the hall is, especially for wind instruments, the hall is our instrument. Uh, it is a part of our instrument the same way that the, um, uh, the, the body of a cello uh, is allowing the, the, the cello strings to resonate uh, after you're done playing them. Uh, with us, we don't have that. You know, our sound stops uh, in the moment that we uh, that we stop playing. That the reed stops vibrating. There is no uh, resonance. There is no after sound. Uh, we need the hole to do that for us. And um, of course, you know, in my work, I encounter all kinds of acoustics. Some of them are miraculous and just a joy to to play anything in. Even you know, the worst reed will sound great. Um, but that happens rarely. A lot of the time. Um, even well-known venues uh, will have mediocre acoustics. Um, so there is some work to be done for sure in classical music uh, in terms of uh, getting acoustical spaces optimized for uh, for the musician and for the audience. Uh, there's a lot of work there. And also for when new venues are built to make sure that uh, the sound engineers have a say um, when otherwise the, the star architect uh, you know, we'll get his vision, uh, which may have little to do with the acoustic properties of the of the venue. So, um, acoustic is is extremely important for us, and uh, and more has to be done for sure. But I'm not sure that uh, the, the sheer volume of the sound is is the place to to look for the meaning of what we do. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's more um, more could be explored sort of through the actual uh, use of things like effects pedals you were talking about than with the volume itself. Um, Along that line, though, are you using, you mentioned um, an electric clarinet. Are you talking about like a pickup or or a synthesizer instrument like in in Akai? uh, I can't remember the name of it right now. No, I've actually, I'm I'm not so interested in synthesizers because I'm I'm just not a big fan of synthesized sound. Um, But that's just me. I mean, sometimes I like it when it's used in other things. But um, no, I'm speaking more about um, a pickup so that you get kind of the... um, you know the, the 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 acoustic quality of the instrument. You can you can push that through some kind of um, sound processing, uh, so that you get um, like in a guitar. You know you get both. Uh, so it's not an electronic sound. It's actually an electric sound. Hmm. 
there is amplification involved, but then you can have all kinds of filters and, and pedals <clears throat> applied to that. Uh, and of course, loop pedals and, and that kind of stuff. So the way it's set up is, um, uh, probably there are more, you know, better systems and more expensive systems, but the way I have it set up is, uh, just with a pickup microphone, which, um, um, is inserted into a special barrel that I have, which has a kind of hole drilled into it. So it picks up things at the barrel. And um, and that gives a chance for the for the pedals to to act on the sound. And Which pickup are you using? Because this is of interest to me right now. I have a great looper pedal that I bought, and then subsequently realized I couldn't use because I was trying to play it through speakers, and, <laughs> and then it would loop oh, yeah. itself in all the time and get feedback and yeah. everything else. Yeah, it takes a lot of experimentation to to also to figure out what you can say with this because you know one thing is to have the, the to have fun with the tools, uh, but the other thing is you know can I say something meaningful with that? What are the strong points of this? Um, how can I mix it with other instruments? Um, you know, I, I actually don't remember exactly what pickup I use because I've had it for for a few years and I just haven't thought about it. I I want to say it's made by Korg, but I'm I'm not totally sure about that either. Um, so, and it's, it's, I don't have it here. It's in my studio. So oh, that's okay. That's okay. Well, it's all very interesting. Thanks for sharing all that with me. That was uh, definitely a direction I did not expect to go with. Neither um, did I, no. <laughs> but I think it's great that we did. That's one of the great things about these conversations. They tend to Absolutely. go off the rails in all sorts of clarinet interesting ways. <laughs> <laughs> right. So let's get back to your more normal type instruments. You're, you're a, uh, and I'm going to always, I always screw up the name of this company. Is it Schwenken Segelka? Yeah, Schwenken Segelke. So you're yeah. a Schwenken Segelke artist, uh, Silverstein, Buffet. Um, what advice do you have on choosing gear? And it looks like one of your instruments is the Reform Bohm system. I'd, I'd love to go into that a bit too. Um, actually, it only looks like it, but it's um, it is a, a French style system. Oh, is it's it? actually yeah, it's actually identical to to what Charlie's uh, to what Charles Nidish instruments are. Oh, okay. Yes, uh, yes, of course, several, but uh, uh, he has. Um, these are the actual copies that he spoke about on your shows that were made of his old R13s. Um, so they are kind of based on the old Buffet R13s that uh, Charles Nydish was playing. Um, of course, they've been perfected and the bore has changed slightly because of the research that uh, Segelke did. Mm-hmm. Um, the, key, the key system that you see uh, is actually a traditional, uh, you know, French system keywork, but it does have like the rollers, for instance, uh, and some of the keys look like they are uh, German keys, um, but the, the feel of it is, is yeah, rather like the French system. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the first time I have rollers, for instance, or I have this flat uh, right hand uh, uh, pinky keys like the German system, and I find them actually very logical and it's not taking me long to get it getting adjusted to them. Uh, the instruments I play with um, uh, that I bought from them is this pair of uh, Mopane uh, wood. Um, actually, I, I, I simply bought them because of uh, Charlie's instruments. They, you know, I tried them when he was here last time in, in January at our festival, at our winter festival. And, uh, and yeah, I just love them. Uh, I just f- felt really at home with them. Um, I... I've played buffet my whole life, and I I, I love buffet crampon, and it's uh, it's been a great experience. Uh, also being close to the company, uh, one of my teachers, uh, Michel Arignon, he's very involved with the company. He's a tester there, so when I've gone to Man-la-Ville in near Paris to the to the factory, 
uh, it's always been a pleasure to to meet up with Michelle and you know with the head uh, uh, engineers there and to try to uh, yeah to see where else we can take the instruments. Um, I I still play. I mean, I still have my set of buffet clarinets, um, Toscan Festival, and uh, and they're just great. Of course, they're they're another kind of instrument. Um, I, I do play uh, still on the on the bass clarinet, uh, a beautiful prestige uh, buffet compound. And um, but I, I think that uh, you know Schwenk and Segelke, they they've really hit something interesting with these uh, uh, with these horns. They are something about the the qualities of the wood as well. Um, as I play also some period clarinet, uh, which you know the period clarinets are made of boxwood. It's a lighter wood. It's it's uh, creates a different sound, very resonant. Uh, but lighter in a way, also in terms of response, it's it's very immediate what it gives you back. Uh, and what I found is that this Mopane wood, for whatever characteristics uh, that it has, it's uh, actually giving, for me, an experience which is about halfway. I get the feeling that it's uh, an extremely uh, versatile modern clarinet with mm, impeccable intonation, very good uh, homo- homogeneous uh, scales. Um, very interesting response, a, a very focused, uh, very compact sound. And at the same time, you know, the, the, this wood is giving, um, an interesting balance towards the period instrument. Uh, it has a very interesting response. It's, uh, it's very sensitive to changes of colors. Um, uh, I like that. I find like it's kind of bridging the gap, um, between what the clarinet used to be and the very futuristic part of it, what it still has not yet become, let's say. Yeah, I think that your your clarinet's kind of onto something there with the little rollers and the the boom keywork um, without actually being, you know, so called reform boom. I, I still can't say I completely understand the difference. To be completely honest with you, but I like the idea of having the rollers on a normal boom clarinet and the you know extra vents and things like that that sort of make the instrument contemporary. Would you agree with Charles? In the last interview, he mentioned that the modern clarinet is in some ways a period instrument, and I found that a very interesting thought. It was great. I, I totally agree with him on that. And uh, uh, I think it is important for, for clarinet players and for instrumentalists in general to go back to, to, to the roots of what their instrument was. Uh, uh, I've learned a lot playing the period clarinet. And uh, it's uh, that, that's also what I found very interesting in your, in, your, in your talk with Charles. Of course, Charles and I have talked about some of the same things in the past. Um, the instrument is just telling you where to go. And uh, the modern instrument is a period instrument. Uh, because it is, it has a long history, uh, and I find it. I find most interesting makers like uh, Segelke, uh, who are uh, actually have the ability to make all kinds of instruments. You know, I, I don't think there are many people like uh, uh, like uh, Jochen Segelke, the the maker there, because what he's able to do uh, in his workshop is to create French clarinets, modern uh, modern German clarinets. Uh, he's able to create. Uh, you know, clarinets, uh, Chalumos from the from the Baroque time, Baroque clarinets, Ottensteiner clarinets from Brahms time. Uh, you know, copies of the uh, Basset clarinet of Stadler. He has the full overview of the whole history of the clarinet, and he can do it superbly uh, with all kinds of materials and amazing craftsmanship. So, um, even though, again, you know, I, I highly advise uh, in, from my own history. Uh, Buffet Crampon or, you know, whatever other brand that people feel comfortable with. Uh, I was also fascinated with, uh, with Jochen's, 
um, connection with history somehow. Uh, and as somebody who's interested in period performance as well, um, I just found it great to, to, to find somebody who actually is a dep- the, the depositor uh, of, of an incredible knowledge of, uh, of instrument making. Absolutely. I should try and get him on the podcast at some, some point here. That would be great. I'm sure he will, he will be very interesting uh, talk. Yeah, I look forward to that. Actually, I should, I should reach out <laughs> to see if he's interested. <laughs> so this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. I'm going to be putting links to not only uh, your website and Facebook page in the comments, but also to your upcoming tour and uh, some of the performances and places to buy tickets and all that sort of thing. Um, before we move on to the lightning round here, which is a series of short questions designed to be answered in less than one minute. And it's okay. <laughs> uh, it's made exclusively available to the Patreon backers of the show who make it possible. Um, but before we move on to that, are you, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add to today's conversation? Well, you know, we touched on many different topics. Um, of course, there, there is more to go in depth uh, on each thing. For instance, we did not talk about, um, you know, the matter of recordings and, and um, how to make sure that people hear you beyond the concert hall. I think that's, uh, that's another different topic that uh, that can be discussed uh finally you know we live in a world which is in total flux uh, uh with classical music and with entertainment uh in general and uh i think the most important thing is to as i mentioned earlier uh make sure that what you do is what you love make sure that what you give uh what you're giving people from the stage or through the microphones onto your cds or onto spotify or youtube or whatever means you choose, uh, make sure that you get something to say. Make sure that people want to uh, hear to hear you over and over again. That's that's the joy of it, you know. It's it's uh, the pleasure of having an audience member come up to you after a concert, uh, maybe somebody who never had listened to a classical music concert before, um, and you know, and and hearing their words and seeing their eyes that uh, something special happened to their to their spirit. Let's say. Um, so that's finally why we do all of it. And I think it's important to, to keep them in mind. And that translates spending time in the practice room, <laughs> spending time, um, you know, with your scores, um, really, um, uh, enjoy the stories that, uh, that these men and women from the past have, or from today, uh, have, uh, bequeathed us, you know, they, they've given us their feelings in, in writing. They, they've given us their stories, their, um, their sound worlds, they have written them down for us. And, uh, and some of them were incredible geniuses. They, they have written down something of great value and it is our responsibility and our joy to give this to our audiences. So, um, keep that always number one. And I think everything else will, uh, will follow. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. And you know what? I'm going to try my best. Um, we'll see. I'm not quite sure what the spring holds yet, but I'll try and come out to your Vancouver show if possible. And maybe we could continue this conversation there in person. That would be wonderful. It would be a pleasure. If you're looking for something to do, by the way, as an aside in Vancouver, um, it looks like your schedule is pretty tight. You're in uh, uh, Georgia just the day before, and then you're heading to Michigan yeah, after that. But if you're looking yeah. for something clarinet related to do, um, the, uh, the Bakun Factory is actually in Vancouver. Um, yeah, I was planning to go because it's, uh, I, I, it was on my mind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting, I, I toured it a couple of years ago and, um, or this past year, I guess I was really impressed. So anyways, well, let's move on to the lightning round here. So these are, like I said, these are six quick questions all to be answered in less than a minute. And, uh, we'll start now. 
So if I were to walk over to your music stand, what would I find on it? Right now you would find uh, uh, two things. It's a Jolive Sonatina for flute and clarinet. Uh, my girlfriend is a flute player and we're playing together in Slovenia, in Ljubljana, one concert at uh, the beginning of next week, which is all made of this very unusual repertoire for flute and clarinet. Uh, and the other thing is uh, Tchaikovsky Fifth Symphony, which I'm playing at the end of next week with uh, the Orchestra Leonore in Italy. And I'm, that's, of course, a great piece for any clarinet player. So I'm looking forward to that. What piece of music or album changed your life indefinitely? Ooh, that's really a tough one. There are so many. Um, I think actually when I was, uh, it, it's maybe a bit sad sounding, but it's it's not sad at all. Um, it, when I was uh, maybe seven or eight years old, I was listening to Mozart's Requiem uh, just on repeat, like every day for months. Um, and I mean, I, I was a relatively happy kid. I, I don't think it had anything to do with, uh, uh, with a particular sadness, but, uh, I, I did, uh, I think that actually, uh, it was a recording by Harnoncourt, I remember, and Concentus Musicum in uh, Soham period instruments. And, uh, and I just, uh, something about the opening of this piece, you know, about uh, the sound of the, of the busted horns and the bassoons mixing in this dark texture. Uh, I just found it so moving. I, I, I found I thought that there was a secret there that I just had to uncover. Uh, and I didn't yet know the clarinet. I didn't even know what a basset horn was, you know, but I think that that sound probably stayed with me and it's, uh, uh, it may have affected later my, my, uh, desire to play clarinet as well. That's so interesting. Um, if you could play any instrument other than the clarinet, which would it be and why? Uh, I think that's an easy pick. Uh, I would, I would say the cello. Oh, really? Uh, yes. <laughs> No, I love the versatility of it. And, uh, it, you know, it can be in so many groups and in chamber music, uh, it's, uh, just such a, a pillar, uh, of chamber music as, as it's always providing the bass, especially in, uh, in uh, Baroque music, um, where the basso continuo, fi- uh, you know, function is just so musically beautiful and important and, uh, undervalued, I would say. So I would, uh, I would probably, uh, want to be a cello player and I would want to devote a particular part of my time to what I cannot do as much of as a clarinet player. That is, uh, Baroque music. If you could go back in time and meet any musician, who would it be and why? Um, yeah, very good one. Again, there are many, um, I would say Mozart actually, uh, I'd be very curious to hear him play. I'd be curious to, uh, spend a night, uh, at his home, having a drink with him. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I just would love to, to, to delve into, uh, his life and his, uh, compositional process and just have a good conversation with him. Uh, easy for me because he also uh, spoke Italian quite well. So I, I guess we would be speaking Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're back in time, maybe not quite so far back. What advice would you give your 21-year-old self? Oh, my 21-year-old self. Um, well, knowing what I know now, I would say uh, uh, everything is going to be okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you're 21 and, and um, you know, your career is still in front of you and then your, your professional possibilities are still in front of you, uh, I think it's a scary thing, you know, I mean, it's, it's great to be young and it's wonderful. I, I remember, uh, so nicely, so many of the emotions of, of being young and having all roads open to me. Um, I think uh, the important thing it would uh, be, I would tell myself, 
um, it's gonna be okay. Just stick with what you love, and uh, and uh, have fun with it, and be serious about it. That's great. That's a great answer. And and the last question is: What is one book that you think everyone should read in the clarinet community? Um, again, there are many. Uh, now, one which comes to my mind is uh, uh, one book uh, about Mozart. Um, of which I momentarily forget the title, but I, I think I will write it to you because uh, it would be good if it's in the notes. Um, it's a book by a, by a British uh, musicologist, um, which is actually uh, studying uh, the um, uh, all the works of Mozart and his biography through his operas. Uh, so it's actually taking the, the major operas of Mozart as a kind of guideline to discuss uh, Mozart the man, Mozart the, the philosopher also, you know, what, what, he, uh, what his thoughts were and what the ideas of his time were uh, about society, about uh, beauty, uh, about, uh, the, um, for instance, the Masonic ideals and so on. Uh, I'm, I'm really sorry I cannot tell you the title right now, but I think That's that okay. uh, it would be good for you to have it bec- uh, written down because it's... Um, it allows uh, clarinetists to look at our music, uh, some of which we have played too much. You know, the clarinet concerto we've played it way too much, and sometimes it loses meaning. Uh, so to go back to um, to the sense of opera, to, to the to the stories and the singing and the the ideals uh, and the aesthetics of the operas of Mozart, I think that's very important. Absolutely, and you know what I forgot? I I was going to ask one. I was going to uh, add one more question to this list, and that is. How many clarinets do you own? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, too many. I, 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 think, I think about, uh, well, not so many like Charles Neidisch because uh, he's really a collector. Um, I have about, I think, 12 or something like this. Oh, wow. Um, actually, one of my, if I, I can go on my own tangent, I'm very proud of one of my last purchases. Uh, it's a one uh, original buffet crampon from uh, about 1835. Wow. It's one of the first um, uh, instruments that uh, Buffet made. Uh, actually, at that time, it was not called Crampon. Uh, it was just called Buffet. Um, and there were um, a couple of brothers having different workshops. Um, and I found this instrument from that time in, in rather good condition. You know, uh, It's very rare to find instruments from, from that time in playable condition. Um, and and it's, it's wonderful. It, you can already see at that time... Uh, the beginning of, of something special happening uh, by the by the buffet factory or, or workshop. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think this is a question I should leave in there because clarinet players always have interesting stories around their their instruments. So that's a very yeah. very <laughs> interesting one you found there. Congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm gonna see if I can try and come out to Vancouver. That would be absolutely wonderful. And I thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Sean. It was a real pleasure. And congratulations on the podcast. It's a wonderful thing you're doing. Thank you so much, Tomaso. show notes for today's episode are available at clarinet.com and if you find you enjoyed the show i'd really appreciate it if you'd consider helping support it you can do this for as little as one dollar a month on patreon or by any other means at clarinet.com support while you're there don't forget to join our email subscriber list 
People who subscribe to the Clarinet newsletter receive free content updates, coupons, and a chance to win giveaways. This month, our giveaway is a D'Addario two-way humidification system, and I have to say, this is one of my favorite products. You just toss the little bag inside of your case, and it keeps the humidity equalized so that your instrument doesn't get damaged, and the nice thing about it is it never gets too humid. It's sort of, it, that's why it's called two-way. It works both ways. It takes away some humidity, or it adds it where it's needed. So, a great product. Uh, you can win your very own. Just head to clarineat.com and enter your email address when prompted to subscribe. I look forward to seeing you again soon with a conversation with Cornell Volak, who recently introduced a new book on articulation techniques, and he did a very popular presentation at Clarinet Fest, which, although I did not have the chance to attend, I got to speak to him in person on the podcast for well over an hour, and we had a wonderful conversation. I should actually mention as well that he was generous enough to invite me to his concert in Calgary here. I guess it was technically a little, little north of Calgary. It was in a city called Airdrie, but wow, fantastic performance. Him and his uh, performance partner there, an accordion player of all things. You'll hear sort of why that's interesting in the episode. Um, but one of the best performances I've seen. Just gr- great playing, great musicians, great stage presence, just a really, really awesome performance. So check his episode out next week, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Today's episode was brought to you by our hosting sponsor, Mo Bleichner Music Distribution, and you can check out their newest product, the $49 Match Pitch Barrel, at clarinet.com slash store. Of course, today's episode was also brought to you by our season sponsor, the Dario Woodwinds. Thank you so much for listening. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. <laughs>